Well, if you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, uh, we're starting at verse 21 today. July 8th, 1741, a 38-year-old preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards delivered one of the most famous sermons ever, and the title of that sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And some of you are already looking for the exits right now. Uh, this, was, this sermon was delivered during what is known as the Great Awakening in New England. Uh, around 1734, 1735, revival really began to break out across the region, and people were coming to uh, saving knowledge of Christ. Um, there was, however, this one region, or particularly this one congregation in Enfield, Connecticut, that was very resistant to the gospel and to sort of this movement as it was occurring. And so Jonathan Edwards had been invited uh, to come and to make clear to the unbelieving audience the peril that they were in, in their unforgiven state. So Edwards pressed upon them that they had sinned against a holy God. They stood on the precipice of his righteous wrath, his fair judgment. And his sermon, as you may know, was very direct, and it was very vivid. Um, one of his more shocking, even memorable illustrations uh, uh, to communicate the condition of the sinner was that of one hanging by a thread over fire. Here are his words. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Yet you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can ever do to induce God to spare you for even a moment. The congregation hearing these kinds of remarks was really cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit definitely worked upon them and actually, Jonathan Edwards was interrupted several times during the sermon with people crying out, saying, what must I do to be saved? In fact, as the story goes, that the, the man who had, the pastor who had invited him to come and to preach, crawled up behind him, pulling on his coattails and said, Mr. Edwards, is there any hope? And maybe over the past few weeks, as we've been preaching through Romans, you felt similarly. As we have been pounding away, or rather as Paul has been pounding away on the guilty condition that all of mankind stands in before a holy God. Even if you look at our title slide for the series, the first third or first portion of the book, it's not equal thirds, but is about guilt. And we are now turning the corner, thankfully, into that second section of God's grace. And so over the past few weeks, again, we've just been pounding away that we are all sinners, Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious, moral and immoral. We are, at the end of it all, sinners, all of us, and we are all in need of a Savior. So today we get to answer the question of the pastor tugging on Edward's coat. Mr. Edwards, is there any hope? 
And the sweet answer to that this morning is yes. There is an abundance of hope. There is really, really good news. And so today the title of my sermon, in contrast to Jonathan Edwards, is Sinners in the Hands of a Saving God. A Saving God. Uh, Dr. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, also a very famous preacher, has said of these verses that we're looking at today, it's no exaggeration to say of this section that it is one of the grandest and most important sections in the whole scripture. And the more contemporary uh, New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, has said of this same passage, it is quite possibly the most important paragraph ever written. That is what is in front of us today. So for the past four weeks, we've been made to see and understand our guilt before a holy God. But today we get to see the mechanics of God's gospel of grace, his means of rescue, or in short form, today we get to see how the guilty get righteous. Uh, Verse 21, Romans 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law of of the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So our first point this morning here is this. The way to become righteous has been revealed. And we could say praise God to that. It was a mystery no longer. For thousands of years, the way of righteousness to Israel had remained a mystery. The prophets had spoke of the solution that God would provide. But each year, year in and year out, decade in and decade out, generation in and generation out, they waited to see what this final solution would look like. And as Paul is announcing this here, uh, that this has been revealed, it's got to feel a little bit like a double-edged sword, I would think, uh, to his audience here. First of all, to the mostly law-abiding Jew, right? Mostly. The self-righteous moralist, the religious person, they probably felt a little bit shocked. Like, what do you mean I need a savior? I'm, I'm trusting in the law. I have been keeping the law most of the time. I, I've done way more good than bad. I'm a good guy not a bad guy. You should see the person next to me in church. They're rotten, right? You can give a little elbow right now. Wake them up. But Paul has made it absolutely clear all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All need a savior. On the other hand, there's probably also a number of well-intentioned Jews who have kept the law mostly and whose conscience is barking at them. They're very aware of the holiness of God. They're very aware of their shortcomings and mistakes. 
And perhaps for years they have been hoping, waiting, wanting to see this promised resolution that God had given. Paul announces the way of righteousness has been revealed. It has been made known. Uh, But amazingly, we learn a whole lot about it here. First of all, it is apart from the law. Apart from the law. In other words, it is not by law-keeping or by observance of the law that anyone is saved. And as I like to say, the law was never meant to save. The law was meant to show. The law does not have saving power. For, For all of its goodness, for all of its benefit, for all of the blessing it was to Israel, it does not have saving power. So let me illustrate this for you. A number of years ago now, I went on a prayer retreat into Denali National Park. I've done it a couple times. There's nothing like camping with bears to facilitate prayer, right? (laughs) So I have enjoyed doing that. In fact, I'll take off right here from Fairbanks. I'll take the train down so I don't even have to drive. Just have my backpack and my resources. I get there and I'll take the wilderness shuttle in, go far back in as I can, spend a couple days, walk, sleep, pray, and just be with God and his creation. And it's a special time for me. Um, But the first time I went to do this, you know, I was nervous about bears and I was nervous about being there by myself. You kind of think, you know, if a bear sees a few of you, he's kind of like, eh, it's not really worth the effort. If he sees one of you, he might go, hmm, hungry, you know. So I was a little apprehensive about it and I, I called the ranger at the office there to understand, you know, can I bring a firearm into the park with me? It's a very interesting conversation. It's a yes-no answer. So the answer is, you are permitted to carry a firearm in the park, but you are not permitted to discharge it. So I'm thinking about that like, huh, it's just a show of force. Hey, bear, you know, (laughs) hey, bear. And I said, you know, Am I to understand then that if a bear is coming at me or a moose or something and I have to defend myself, and this is an issue of life or death, and I defend myself by discharging the firearm either to scare it off or to kill it, surely I would find some forgiveness there. And he said the most fascinating thing. He said, well, Mr. Johns, to explain things to you, this law is written not to protect you, but to protect the sanctuary of the park. The law is actually written so that we can, if we choose to, prosecute you. It is not written for your protection. You have no protection under this law. And when he said that, I thought, I owe you some money because I'm going to use this as a sermon illustration (laughs) for years to come. That's a brilliant picture of the reality and the insufficiency of the law. Good as it is, much as it protects, as much of a blessing as it is for the sanctuary of God, it was not written to protect us. As lawbreakers, we are those who are now able to be and must be prosecuted by the law. And that's what the Apostle Paul has gotten at previously. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. 
Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law was never meant to save. It was meant to show. And what it shows us is that we are lawbreakers. And we need one who kept the law for us. We need a savior. The second thing we see here about this righteousness uh, that has been revealed, it is apart from the law, but secondarily, it is a given righteousness. And again, as we talked about earlier in the book, when it talks about the righteousness of God, we are not in this situation talking about an attribute of God, though certainly he is righteous. We're talking about something that comes from God, something that is of him, that is available from him. Uh, And what this shows to us is that this righteousness that is available from God, it's not our default position. Otherwise, we wouldn't need it. More than that, it's not something we can earn. It is a gift. It is a gift. It is a given thing. The righteousness of God is a given righteousness, a gift righteousness. A couple weeks ago, um, I received a very special gift, and I brought it this morning. Big shocker here. And it's in this case. And a dear friend of mine, actually what's in this case is a handmade bamboo fly rod that was made about 10 years ago, is my understanding. I had no idea this was coming. Uh, It's a beautiful rod. It actually comes with two tips in case you break one. Um, it is actually, I have the real piece here. Uh, again, handmade, even the, the core candle here is incredibly high grade and it's still under cellophane. Uh, if you want to look at it afterwards, it costs a dollar to come up and look at it. <laughs> I'll let you see it. Right. So this, this um, was presented to me. This dear friend said, here, I want you to have this. I thought, are you kidding me? And I opened it up and unpacked it and saw what was in there. And uh, I can't wait to fish this thing next year. Come on, summer. It's only eight months away. <laughs> I hope to pair this with an old click and Paul traditional reel, which if you don't know anything about that, they're the ones that go zzz when the fish comes. And if fish is hitting a little too hard, I'm going to be like, ah, you know, don't break my rod. But this... Um, rod that was given to me was absolutely a gift. No strings attached. They didn't come to me and say, you know, Pastor Eric, I want to give you this. Uh, Could I hear a sermon on such and such? (laughs) Could I sit in the front row? The answer is yes. You may sit in the front row. There was no quid per quo. There was no merit. There was no earning. There There was nothing other than just a kind-hearted person that said, Here is a gift. And this is the same thing as the righteousness of Christ that is made available to us. It is absolutely a pure, unearned, undeserved, unmerited gift. Just given. Just given. I think it's very hard for us to believe that. John Stott has said it memorably that the symbol of Christianity is the cross and not the scales. The cross says, This is given. The scale says you'd better earn it. The symbol of our faith is the cross of Christ. So to recap here, the way of righteousness that has been revealed is apart from the law. It's a given righteousness. And then thirdly here, it is appropriated by faith. 
Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In other words, we must believe that this gift is being offered to us. We must receive this gift. We must lay hold of this gift through repentance and faith. That's how we access it. Believing that it is offered is not the same thing as believing in. We have to entrust ourselves to God's offer of grace. Uh, I, I brought a, a picture in a painting. Maybe you know something about Rembrandt. And I want to show you this very famous painting of his. Uh, this is referred to as the, the raising of Christ. And it's a very famous painting. And Rembrandt had uh, a kind of a pattern, a tradition of painting himself into many of his biblical scenes. So if you see the person at the foot of the cross there, your eye is meant to go actually not to Christ, uh, or not to Christ only here, but to see this person at the foot of the cross who is very conspicuously illuminated. Do you see that? The light is on him. And he's wearing this goofy hat that's completely inconsistent with the time period. And Rembrandt is drawing attention to himself in this scene so as to convey that Christ was put on the cross because of me. I put him there. I put him there. It's strange that in any scene of the crucifixion that Christ would not be central, but he, he, sort, of, he sort of almost pushes him off to the side here to show the guilt and the consequence of sinful mankind. Or you think of the hymn that says, it was my sin that held him there. That is the place that we all have to get to. Not simply to believe in the historical fact of the crucifixion, but to believe it personally that I put Christ there. My sins did. He died for me. And we appropriate this grace, this salvation, this righteousness through faith. Imagine if my friend had come up to me with this fly rod case and held it out and said, Eric, this in here is a beautiful fly rod. It's handmade. It's bamboo. And this I want to give you. I know you will delight in it. Here you go. And imagine if I had just stood there and said, wow, cool. Hands in the pockets, aloof, backed up. That's amazing. Thanks, thanks for that offer. Cool. Faith is reaching out. Faith is receiving. Faith is appropriating what has been offered. We receive what the Lord Jesus Christ has offered to us by repenting of our sin and entrusting ourselves into his gracious gift, his sacrifice. And the caution I want to give to many of you is this. I have no doubt that there are a number of people in the room this morning who are very, aware, very aware, aware of the historic sacrifice of Christ. You believe in that. But you continue to stay back, hands in your pockets, understanding it, but not appropriating it through faith. And I want to, I want to challenge you this morning to cross over that line of faith to receive what God has made available for you. Some of you grew up in a Christian home. You had Christian parents. You find yourself married to a Christian spouse. 
Some of you come to church because it's the good and moral and respectable thing to do, or at least that's what your friendship group is doing. The reality is none of us is a Christian by virtue of the building or our association with any person. Uh, Or as my friend Dave Chausse says, God has no grandchildren. We are either related directly to him or not. And the way we are rightly related to God is appropriating by faith the greatest gift ever given. And what that results in for us is peace with God. Not just in the eternal life, but even now, to live life here and now, knowing I'm at peace with God, knowing that his righteous wrath and anger will not fall upon me, but has fallen upon Christ as my substitute. So this righteousness that has been made known is apart from the law. It is a given righteousness. It is appropriated by faith. It is needed by all. Paul says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And so here we see that this is both a past action and a future action, right? All have sinned. Yes, I've sinned in the past, but all fall short. This is a present and continuous action. We continue to fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's no loophole here. No one can say, I've never sinned. No one can say, I won't ever sin. Our sin is a matter of the past, the present, and the future. And we, all of us, all of us need to find our way back to right standing with God because we are all sinners. And what we see here is that Jesus, the Son, is the only way we are made right with the Father. Now, that point that I've just said is pretty frustrating and irritating to, I would say, our current culture. Uh, The current culture would say, Jesus is the only way. You're saying there's only one right world religion. There's only one way that a person can be reconciled to God. That's offensive. That's narrow-minded. That's intolerant. That's whatever you want to call it. This only Christ standard is called by theologians the scandal of particularity. But I want to illustrate its importance through kind of a funny story, if you don't mind. We're going to go back to college with Eric here. My freshman year at Biola University uh, was in a dorm known as Emerson, um, which actually now uh, houses the Tory Honors Program that both Aiden and Ellie are in. So that's super fun. In fact, my first dorm room is now the lobby of the Tory Institute, and my second dorm room is the office of Dr. Fred Sanders. So that's pretty funny to me. But um, my freshman year, I was in a triple. So we had three three guys um, in this room, both guys named uh, Justin, and they were good guys, and we became friends. Um, one of them was much more annoying than the other. Um, and uh, Justin, who came from a pretty well-to-do family, would regularly help himself to my things. Uh, and at, at first, it was smaller things. Like, um, at first, it would be something like laundry detergent, fabric softener. Okay, that's annoying, but, you know, we'll survive. And then it sort of went from there. Uh, It would be baked goods that my family would have sent, a tray of bonbons that my grandmother in Michigan sent. That crossed the line. That's when it got got hot then. And then he started helping himself to clean socks from my drawer. And I just got to say, I would never help myself to anything in another man's sock and underwear drawer. 
But that's like untouchable. That's unclean, right? We don't, we just leave that, especially in college. Come on. They might have been clean. They might have just been turned the other way out. I don't So he was wearing my socks. I hope that's all he was wearing. I didn't even think about that. It just occurred to me right now. I don't know. <laughs> so I was getting in, increasingly irritated about this. And so one day I was out shopping. I was in a sporting goods store around the corner from Biola. And I walked in and there was a bin uh, of socks, of tube socks with a clear, on a clearance sale. And I looked at that and I really felt the Lord impressing upon me, Eric, you, you can either be angry or you can be generous. I didn't like that feeling, but <laughs> uh, I'm not from a well-to-do family. I was working three jobs to be at Biola and I was taking student loans. And here my rich friend, roommate is taking my socks. I still remember the price because I bought these. They were 12 bucks. And that was a hard $12 to spend because he didn't deserve it. He didn't need it. It wasn't right, but I got him anyways. And so I remember coming back from uh, the store and walked into the dorm room and Justin happened to be in there. And so I kind of proudly took the package of socks and tossed them to him. He caught them looked at both sides and said, oh, no thanks, I don't wear tube socks and tossed them back. (laughs) I I honestly don't remember what happened next. I think (laughs) I went into some kind of black hole of rage and have forgotten it. I don't, I really don't remember. But I I was absolutely outraged. I'm thinking, you're wearing my socks. You don't deserve these. You're wrong. I'm giving you a gift You won't receive my gift. You're criticizing my gift. You'd rather go on offending me than receive what I've offered to you. He rejected it. I'm still mad about it. (laughs) And I'm talking about tube socks. But as it relates to God, how does God feel about those who reject the gift of his one and only son? I have two sons, I have a lovely daughter, and I wouldn't give any of them for any of you, just so you know. It is astounding to me, however, that God gave his only son for sinners and rebels and those who had declared themselves enemies of his. And he gave his only son. And if that doesn't shock you and make you a little uncomfortable, I'm not sure you've rightly considered it. We were in the wrong. We didn't deserve the gift. It was incredibly costly. The gift was given. Do we really think that we could reject the gift of God and that somehow we would find some other acceptable way? That's offensive. Sin is so grievous to God that it has to be eviscerated. It has to be punished. It has to be paid for. And God in his great and magnanimous love for sinners, you and me, gave his son as payment for our sins. Do we think it's a small deal to reject this gift? Finally here, or not quite finally, but nearly. This righteousness is available because Christ atoned for sins. Atoned for sins. Atonement is a good word, to atone for something but I think we mistake it a little bit because of our contemporary use. We might think about atonement like this. Billy the batter, in an important baseball game. It's October after, we should talk about baseball a little bit. 
Billy the batter strikes out three consecutive times, leaves a runner stranded each time. They come into the final inning of the game and they're down three runs. Billy, the strikeout batter, gets up to bat again. And he hits a walk-off Grand Slam home run. They win the game. The announcer would say something like, he totally atoned for himself. And that's what we think of when we think of atonement, paying for our mistakes, covering our own mistakes. It is not something we can ever do in this world. Our sin is against a holy God. We can't undo them. We need them to not just be forgiven, looked past. We need them to be paid for, and we can't afford it. But Christ in his perfection and his righteousness can afford it. He is the only one with a moral bank account that can cover the sins of mankind, and he did. He died in our place. He was sacrificed for our sins. He paid for them. This given righteousness uh, required atonement for God to be both gracious and just. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. So I'm going to make a kind of a controversial or provocative statement here. Atonement protects God and it protects man. Atonement protects God and it protects man. The justice of God is in jeopardy if he doesn't punish sin. But the human race is in jeopardy if he doesn't provide a way out. How can this tension be solved? How can that be resolved? Let me put it to you another way. You may have heard uh, about my little tiff with Alaska Airlines. (laughs) It's ongoing, sort of. Uh, The short answer here is uh, they've rejected any remuneration or compensation for the fourth time and followed it up with something close to a cease and desist request. (laughs) Okay. Um, But their letter said something like this. I'm not reading it exactly. If if you don't remember the story here, if you missed it, flying my daughter down for college, one of her bags got broken into, 80% of the contents taken, about $2,800 worth of stuff. It's gone. And Alaska Airlines won't take responsibility for any of it. That's where we are. But their letter back said something like this. We're very sorry for your loss. We know that we have disappointed you. We claim no responsibility for your losses. We hope to provide you with the same excellent service you're accustomed to receiving from us. (laughs) Now, I'm a words guy. I have a lot of words I want to say back. But they all start with, this is exasperating. How can you say all of these things simultaneously? How are these things all together true? There is no integrity in this statement. And in a similar way, how could God say, sin is absolutely a big deal and I am punishing it, but here is forgiveness. The very integrity of God is at stake, along with the safety of mankind. The gospel is the beautiful solution to these two inconsistent things, which is that God, unlike Alaska Airlines, 
took responsibility for our sins. It wasn't his mistake. They weren't his sins. They were ours, but he took responsibility. He pays for them in himself. He kills sin in Christ and therefore can forgive sin because it was punished. It's not just a statement where God looks the other way and says, it's no big deal, I don't care. It's a big deal, and I cared enough to kill it in my son. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. Understand, all sin will be punished. Either in Christ as your substitute or in you for eternity. Those are the only two options. The cross protects mankind from judgment while simultaneously preserving the justice of God. But it must be received. It must be appropriated by faith. The last point I'm going to do fairly quickly here because I think it's fairly uh, simple and speaks for itself. If righteousness is given, if it's given, then boasting is gone, right? Then boasting is gone. It'd be absurd for me to pick up this fly rod and go, look at this beautiful rod that I've secured or that I've got. I, I didn't make it. Somebody else did it. I'm just blessed to receive it. But I can't boast, right? I can't boast about it. Verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of the law, the law that requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And I think the simplest way to see this is is in sort of two statements here. First of all, justification does not come by law-keeping, as we've already seen. But law-keeping comes because we have been justified. In gratitude and recognition of what God has done for us, we want to obey him. We want to please him. Martin Luther has said this cleaner than anybody ever, I think. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Law-keeping is the outworking of genuine faith, but it doesn't make it. Or one last way to think about it is this. If we have a genuine faith in Christ, if we've received forgiveness by giving, uh, receiving the grace and the, and the, uh, that he has given to us and receiving that forgiveness, that righteousness, that given righteousness, then we'll live into it. Again, to come back to the flat rod here, I can receive this gift and go, cool, and just put it on the shelf. But to really have that, to really possess that is to take it out and use that and experience the unmatched smoothness of that rod bending and throwing line. That's the real treat. And so it is with our faith of not just possessing and having, but using it, living into it, enjoying it, and being the people God has made us to be. So there's two, two points of application quickly here. First of all, for some of you, you've already crossed the line of faith. You know that you're saved. You're saved by grace through what Christ has performed for you. You know that. But sometimes we get complacent. 
And my hope this morning is that just by hearing the gospel again, the mechanics of it, and what God has secured for you in Christ, you would love it, delight in it, and that your affections for God would be renewed. For some of you, you're like that picture of the person who is standing back, offered a gift, hands in pockets. You've not yet reached out to receive it and procure it. And if that's you, I'm gonna lead us in a prayer now that would give you the opportunity to receive by faith what God has given to you in his grace. Let's pray. Father, this is the greatest news ever. We acknowledge that we are sinners, all of us. We acknowledge that our sin makes us vulnerable to the sure coming righteous wrath and judgment of God. So we rejoice to know that righteousness has been given through faith in Christ. That not depending on ourselves or our works or our efforts, but by reaching out in faith to the one who performed the law for us, his righteousness can be given to us. And we sinners can be made right with a holy God. God, I receive the gift of salvation through Christ and his atonement. Help me to live into it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.